Welcome to another edition of TrackCast, the official podcast of the Real Estate Council from deep in the heart of Dallas, Texas. I'm Bill San Antonio. Thanks for joining us. Our CRE Executive Roundtable series returns today with another look at the future of Dallas's economy through the eyes of our commercial real estate industry. Today's guests include Craig Davis, the CEO of Visit Dallas, who opens the conversation with an update on the hotel and hospitality industry. Labor economist Pia Arenius of the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas then details for us the Dallas Fed's long-term outlook on the region's recovery from the coronavirus pandemic. And finally, HKS Architect CEO Dan Noble shares his thoughts on how his company has approached returning to the office and how the office will evolve because of the pandemic. Before we get started, I'd like to give a quick reminder to subscribe to the show if you haven't already. We're on all the major platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Be sure to follow Trek on social media as well. We've got links to all of our profiles in the show notes. And now, here's our latest CRE Executive Roundtable, right here on TrackCast. And then when COVID happened, and I heard, Bill, you said that you know, you're an optimist, and so am I. I thought we'd be having a very different conversation uh, in the, over the summer saying, you know, we can really salvage the fall and then just get back into Q1 next year and we'd be fine. But obviously this is dragging uh, beyond the, the time that we thought. So for us, our, our revenue re- projections for the year of 2020 are going to drop over 50% um, over which they, they were last year and even more. And when we had this crisis happen, we brought in a firm called Tourism Economics, which are the gold standard of of economic forecasting in the tourism space. And they're based out of Philadelphia and their mothership is in, uh, is in Oxford, England. And uh, they came in and they told us in Dallas that the, the effect of COVID is not times worse, the combination of 9-11 and 2008 put together. And that was their first forecast. And then they came back in in April and did a second forecast for us and decreased next year by another 33%. So I don't even know how much that is worse than the combination of 9-11 so I know that everybody on this call has had their industry affected deeply by COVID. And I don't mean to suggest for a second that, that it's boohoo, you know, the tourism industry is, is worse out than everybody else. But, you know, I think it doesn't take a very big stretch to, to gather that uh, we've been hit amongst the worst in the, in the industry. So that's the bad news. The good news is that we're starting to climb back up. Uh, occupancies, especially on the weekends in Dallas, have been been going up pretty high. And when you say pretty high in the 40s and 50s, I never thought I'd say that in my life. And um, the outlook for next year, so we're, we, we are thinking that we're going to be about 33% lower next year in terms of total revenue. Occupancy should return um, to, to Dallas in about 2023, but our full recovery back to 2019 levels won't happen until 2025. And that's primarily due to average hotel room rate. Um, I came from the hotel business before this, the first things that hotels do in these crises is they drop their rates down to nothing and then they start a rate war with each other. And once you start to have a rate war, you never get it back up again, not right away. You know, when you, especially when you have corporate accounts and you're dealing with banks and other institutions, if you give them a, a rate of 100, and, if you went for a $250 rate in, in year one and then you gave them a $190 rate in year two, you're not going back up to 250 in year three. So it becomes that slow climb out of, uh, the, out of the, 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 the ditch that we've dug. But I think that you're going to see conventions returning to 
uh, Dallas, well, there has to be a vaccine first. And then we're, we're, we're forecasting conventions to start happening next year, start to crawl back in Q2. And then we figure by summer of next year, we should be lighter, but not, not as bad as we are right now. Right now, and I was kind of joking with Bill um, when we spoke earlier this week, it's not really about booking conventions in the next 12 months. It's about trying to save cancellations. We've had our complete, our November, our, our September, October, November, December have cleared out. So we have no conventions on the books. We have a few sporting events. And then we still have things holding on for Q1. Um, and we will probably see some of them fall out or just show up with a, a small percentage of their attendees. But we're just hoping that we can do this. Uh, the hotels have in place great protocols, uh, six foot distance, masks, really, you know, superior things that are keeping everybody safe. So we're hoping that, that the uh, business returns uh, in, the, in the sooner rather than later. Bill, did you have any question for me at all? So what does next year look like? I mean, do you, are, are people canceled through May or mid-summer? Mid no, no. they? Um, what are, the, what's next year look like? Q1 is starting to fall apart a little bit, but, it, but um, it's still holding on. I mean, everything's relative. I never thought I would ever, you know, I'd ever face a situation where we have no business on the books, no large business on the books for months and months and months. And remember that, you know, Visit Dallas are the ones that bring the conventions into the convention center. We're the ones that attract tourism into Dallas. And we're in the business of crowds. And that is the antithesis of what's happening right now. People don't want to be in crowds. So we're, I'm really in the wrong business at this point in time. But um, we, we see a small climb back next year and then back to, to normal levels, whatever the new normal would be um, in, in about the Q2 of next year. So it's not all bad news. Well, and, and you know, when you said you're 50% of last year, that's probably better than I would have thought. Less than 50. We don't know yet. Um, yeah, it's going to, um, it'll, it'll wash out in the end. That's what they, they said that we're projected to drop that, but that was the projection in April. So by the time we get to the end of December, it, it's anybody's guess. But the bright lining is that we are starting to see a return in some cases to some business levels are starting to pick up, which is a godsend for us. Anybody in the group have any questions? Yeah. Hey, Craig. Uh, this hey, Ray. Craig. We, uh, maybe by real estate people by definition are optimist. And so yes. if we look out, what do you need from the city to create a more attractive place for conventions to come? And I, I'm, it's kind of a self-serving question because, you know, I got a project next to the convention center. I do. I thought maybe you could tell everyone on this, the RFP they're going through for the convention center, but it's one thing to do a study, it's another thing actually to get it done. So can you kind of walk us through to what makes Dallas a very attractive convention place? Well, that's, thanks for that leading, for that, Ray. Uh, you know, Dallas is the number five convention city. <clears throat> yeah, you can't, Vegas doesn't share information, so we're probably number six, but we're the number five in the nation um, amongst our competitors. So, you know, long before I got to visit Dallas, the, this is a, a convention machine in Dallas. Everybody wants to be in this part of the country. Um, we have arguably one of the, the least pretty convention centers on the, in, in, the, in the world, um, but it, is, it has a great utility. It's all on one floor. It has almost no pillars. It just, it, it, it's contiguous. People can dress it up and they, they love it. And they love Dallas and they love the ease of access here. So 
we are really actually in a great position for growth in the future. When I took the position, um, I saw what their convention pace was, and I'd never seen anything like it in, in my 30 years of being in the business. Um, we have some years pre-COVID that, that we're 230% of our pace uh, in future years. So the future is incredibly bright, right? The convention center or the, the city prior to, to all this had what they've been deeming a, a master plan to redo the convention center. Parts of the convention center, the first part of the convention center was built in 1970. So, and it looks it, by the way. And um, they have a convention center master plan to redo the convention center, put a tower on it, and uh, to really kind of expand it. And we need it. We lose a lot of opportunities to other cities that have more space than us. Um, we also lose opportunities because we don't have a concentration of big hotels centered around the convention center. Um, the, besides the Omni, you really have to, we have to pay for transportation for them to get to the Sheridan, to the other hotels in the, in the comp set. Um, it's, it's not an ideal situation, but it really does sell. And uh, I'm really, I feel really blessed to, to be here in this position to sell the city. Uh, where our future is incredibly bright. So the master plan is going to be picked up again. Um, I think that city council will be briefed about it in October. And they plan to, it's going to be a little bit delayed, but they plan to, we're going to be starting to share it with our customers. And when you do that, then, uh, then it's serious because our customers will hold us to that. Say that if you book your convention in 2025, you're going to have a, a new convention center or a changed convention center. And we can't lose face. So um, until I'm convinced that that's the case, Ray, I'm not going to show it to any, any uh, customers. But I've been told by the city that, that it, it's on. Um, and you ask what the city can do. They can just, from my standpoint, they can get out of the way and, uh, and let people like yourself and Jack, who I see on the call, um, let you do your developments. And all of you around there, it, just to get out of your way and, and, to, and to let the business happen. We're, we have an opportunity with, with Ray's, uh, his development at the, the Dallas Morning News, the old Dallas Morning News uh, building, to really expand the convention center in a meaningful way. So. I'm talking to uh, Dr. Eric Johnson, the new uh, economic development person at the city, about what we can do with that, that and, and to, to get his buy-in to, to, to really expand our presence on the national stage and the world stage. I hope I answered your question, Ray. Yeah, well, it was a setup for you. I know, yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Any other questions from the group? Sure, if you don't mind, I'll ask a few questions. I talk an awful lot to Dr. Johnson, um, and part of his economic development plan is a is at Best Dallas, a uh, new economic development agency. But I also know that some of the things he said to me is that um, he anticipates that the marketing arm that you are for the city of Dallas is also going to be very beneficial to business and to relocating businesses. I'd love to hear your perspective on that because uh, I think it would be very, very interesting since all of these guys build the buildings that these uh, new companies. Yeah, well, Linda, just like you, you, you set me up for that, just like Ray set me up. The, <laughs> you know, you, you don't, you know, we're not in that business. We're not, we're an economic development organization. We bring in, uh, we bring in billions of dollars collectively, not just visit Dallas, but the whole community brings in billions of dollars worth of, of. Uh, money and taxes that are paid by people that don't live in Dallas. They come here, they spend their money, and then they, they go uh, away, and they leave their money here. And that's the best kind of money to have is from outside of the region. And if you think about it, you know, when you take a visit of a place, that's your first exposure in many cases. I had traveled to Dallas a number of times for different conventions, 
And when the opportunity came up, I had already visited here before. I knew this was a great city and I wanted to be here. But that same thing around the, 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 the call here, I'm sure that somebody like Jack, and Jack and I've had a discussion, he's also from Canada. He had to come and visit Dallas first before he decided, I want to relocate there and I want to start my business or I want to buy a business. So for many, many people, this is their first date when they, when they come in for a visit and they get and they see the city and then they decide they're going to invest in it. Um, I, my daughter goes to University of Virginia. I would have never let her go to University of Virginia unless I went to Charlottesville first and checked it out and made sure that it was a place that I would want her to go. So to that, we are really, I think that we can work very closely with our friends in economic development. And the other part that I've talked to, to Eric about is the fact that we bring in hundreds of conventions of people that are prime targets for us. These people have to come here because the convention's in Dallas, um, but if, depending upon what the need is here in terms of workforce developments, uh, or do we need certain, certain sectors? We're bringing in business in almost every sector and if we can target those people in a meaningful way to say, hey, why don't you think about relocating to Dallas, then that we go a step further. So I'm having discussions with Eric about that. And then the last thing I'll ask it, well, mention, um, I'm co-chairing the International Economic Development Conference, which was supposed to be in Dallas in October. Yeah. And uh, obviously it's going virtual, but the good news is, is that we've got an agreement from IEDC to do the convention here in 2023. Yes. So we're, we're bringing it back. Thank you for that. Years which is, uh, I think it'd be great for Dallas. And we had a lot of tours and different things planned for all those economic development pro uh, professionals. So we're excited about bringing you back in 2023. Thank you so much, Linda. Sure. That's all I have, Bill. Anybody else have any other questions? Craig, Craig how do we fare? How, does Dallas fare well with other major cities? I mean, for tourism? Yeah. Um, when you talk about tourism, you know, we really, uh, we, we fare really well because we are a close drive market to a lot of different big, big, big cities, big markets, a big population. Our catchment is very far. We go all the way down into Mexico. We go into the neighboring states. So another big reason why people travel is to visit friends and family. And there are a lot of people that live in Dallas with a lot of friends and family. So that is a huge draw. Now, would you talk to us compared to, say, Los Angeles, New York, uh, Vegas, it's a different conversation, but as far as big cities like Chicago, big, you know, big first-tier cities, we, we're in the top 10. And in terms of markets, we're in, I think we're number eight in terms of, of big markets for tourism. And you would think with what's going on in some of these big cities, Dallas has got to go up the list there because there's a lot more, seems to be, I mean, there's unrest all over the country, but it seems to be a little less here than in, in some other cities. I think you're right. I think that we're considered a safe place to go. Uh, and another thing that we've done is we've, as an industry, we've, we've partnered with the uh, Global Biorisk Association to have a lot of our buildings certified as being clean because that's a big, people are not going to travel until they feel safe that there, there are cleanliness safeguards in the different places. So we've done it, uh, we've partnered with this national program our convention center is certified. We have about 40 hotels that are getting certified, um, different city buildings. Um, DART is going through the process. Both of our airports have gone through the process. So we're really putting those protocols in place. But to your point, Bill, I think we're in a great position to survive this. We may come out of it a little bit later than other cities because we're so dependent on group business. 
But when we come out, we're going to come out big. Um, we have a lot of pent-up demand in the other years. My staff, my sales staff, is still going to make their goal this year. They're not going to make it with business that they place this year or next year, but they're making that goal placed uh, in, in future years. So um, Dallas is still on, on uh, important people's radars. Awesome. Can I ask a follow-up question to what you just said? This is Mike Ablon. Um, Hi, Mike. I know my numbers are off, but hopefully they'll be close. I think we had 64,000 jobs in the tourism and um, industry, and we had um, 12 billion of economics with direct and then the indirect. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. When you're talking about hitting goals, going in, forget 2020, but going forward, can you give some sense of as objectively as you can? How does that compare to those previous numbers? <laughs> well, the goal was set for us for 2020. Our fiscal year finishes at the end of September this month. Our goals were set last year, and we started in September of last year, or in October of last year, making those goals. Despite COVID, now our goals are multifaceted, but they really do mean heads and beds. How many people are you bringing in and putting in hotel rooms? And because Quite frankly, that's how we're paid. We, we, get a, we get a piece of the hotel tax that helps to keep our operation going. So we have our whole goal base is 2.5 million room nights. And it looks like we're going to make those goals this year. Next year, different situation because um, we're going to be having a full year next year that's going to be a, a COVID year. Uh, but that's how we're that, – so our, our sales team has been able to place business in future years, not in the next nine months. Thank you. But your your um your statistics are correct. Sixty five thousand people in the in the uh, directly employed by tourism in Dallas. Anybody else? Uh, Bill, quick question. Sorry, Craig. Quick question for you. Um, I was wondering, uh, with respect to the convention business, what kind of impact does it have on the hotel market? So, if the convention business doesn't come back, what is the impact on the surrounding hotel market in terms of occupancy and demand? Well, you know that's a and uh, forgive me because I don't have those statistics right off, and I should know that, Jim. Um, I'm going to I'm going to take a wild guess, but it's I'm guessing it's not going to be that bad. When you talk about convention business, we're talking about convention business at the convention center, but every single hotel, except for select service, has their own meeting space, and they have their own sales team that fills their space with weddings, conventions, you name it, uh, conferences, business events that don't even touch Visit Dallas. That is fully probably 60% of the downtown hotel's occupancy. So um, we're still a very big attractor for uh, business travel, but a lot of uh, companies have banned travel until at least the end of this calendar year. So it's going to have a 50 to 60% hit right away until we can start meeting. Thank you. Anybody else? Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank Thanks you. so much, Bill. Very informative. Gia? Yeah. Okay, so you're next up. You're welcome to stay on. Yeah, you're welcome to stay on and listen. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. You're yeah, very welcome absolutely. to stay on. Um, next up, um, Linda and I were trying to, uh, had tried to call Rob Kaplan of, of the Fed to uh, um, come and talk to the group. And luckily he was busy. We get to get Pia today to help us understand what the future looks like. But Pia, what we're, this is a group of real estate professionals. They're developers, long-term owners, uh, uh, um, people involved in the service business, 
you know, the government's printing money like crazy. I mean, um, how's Dallas going to fare? What's what's next year look like? Give us your your snapshot on on um, should we be optimistic or pessimistic in the next 12 to 18 months? And what's your view on? Uh, Craig gave us you know timing on when he thinks we get back to normal. What, what's your view of that? And then I'll open it up to questions from there. Okay. Um, can you hear me okay? Perfectly. Oh, great. Perfect. I wasn't sure because I was having first time on Ring Central. Well, thank you for having me. It's super exciting to be here this morning. And I'll just start with some introductory remarks and then certainly happy to take your questions. So the economy is in recovery. Uh, we're growing. Uh, you know, if we had a, a proper definition of a, of a recession, I could tell you that, um, you know, the recession should be over, but the recovery certainly doesn't feel like normal, and it won't for a long time. Um, but that said, uh, whether it's a V or a check mark, we are in recovery. The economy's growing this quarter. We should be growing about 25% annualized GDP growth in the U.S. as a whole. Um, the expectation, for example, for the Friday's jobs numbers is somewhere between 500,000 and a million jobs created, um, and further declines in the unemployment rate. Um, so uh, that said, although we're growing and we're recovering, we're very far from where we started the year, obviously. And it's going to take us probably till 2022 to get back to where we were. We still have, you know, nationally something like 20 six million under and unemployed. Um, and we have another two million in Texas that are either unemployed or underemployed. Um, so uh, employment so far in the US is down about a little over 8% from where we were in the in February before the pandemic. And in Texas, we're down about six 6.4% from where we were in February. Um, what's gone right in this pandemic, I would say the fiscal response was large and swift for once. Uh, Congress and the president did a good job on that, I would say, in terms of coming in with a really broad package, especially the CARES Act, um, that did a lot uh, to help consumers and to help businesses. The Fed's response obviously has also been broad and fast, and that's also been, I think, very helpful to market functioning and to lowering rates and increasing liquidity. Unfortunately, fiscal response has petered out, and that's one of our uh, biggest concerns in the second half of the year. Uh, in terms of our forecast, that's our downside. Our main downside risk is the lack of fiscal response. We certainly had counted on that uh, in, in making our projections. Um, nonetheless, I will say that spending has stayed strong so far, even into August. Um, and what's interesting is I mentioned how strong the fiscal response was early on in March and April. And if you look at spending by consumers, you can see that personal income was way up in April and March. I mean, in April and May, uh, people have even have so much money they're paying down their debt. So the aggregate consumer debt has gone down. Savings rate is way up. Um, so two thirds of people on unemployment are actually making more in unemployment than they made working. And that's because of the pandemic unemployment benefits. Of course, they've expired by now. So that's no longer the case, but that was the case from April through July. In our district, Texas has performed surprisingly well. And I say surprising because we really took it on the chin in the energy sector as well as the leisure and hospitality sector. So we also have a lot of airlines. And so we have a lot of vulnerabilities. And we also have fewer workers that can work remotely than they do sort of in the nation on average. 
Um, so, so it's surprising that we've done better, but we have done better so far. Um, like I said, the unemployment rate here is lower and we've lost fewer jobs in a relative sense. Um, now that said, we've been extremely hard hit and um, we still have 1.1 million unemployed. Uh, and it's gonna take us uh, definitely into 2021, possibly 2022 uh, to, to, to fully recover. For the year, we're forecasting uh, that we'll be down in terms of employment about 4.5% in December. So December over December employment in Texas should be about 4.5% uh, below where we started. Um, and unemployment rate, uh, we're not sure. It could be between 6 and 7% at the end of the year. Uh, housing has been a bright spot, as all of you know, being in the real estate sector. Um, so demand has been resilient there. And uh, prices are up really on resilient demand and low inventories. Um, we are seeing construction turn around just a little bit now and, and improve in the residential sector, but we're seeing that non-residential construction is really not coming back. And so we're a little bit concerned about that, but obviously office markets and, um, and apartments are getting hit by the pandemic and that should last uh, for a while longer. So I'll stop there and uh, happy to take your questions. Anybody in the group have questions? Yeah, what, what is y'all's concern about uh, mortgages or foreclosures and things like that in, in, on the, in the commercial sector, not residential, but on the commercial sector? Is that something that's, that has been flagged? Um, certainly, not, I haven't seen any data on, on that for the commercial sector, but that's certainly a sector that's not protected. Uh, by any of these regulations, whether local, state, or federal, in terms of, uh, you know, we've had an eviction ban, and it looks like the president has imposed an, another eviction ban. But of course, if that's helping uh, renters and not helping the, the owners of the properties, and it's not giving rental assistance, but it's just preventing evictions, and then you're really just passing the burden on to uh, the landlord. Uh, mm -hmm. So, so that's definitely a concern. That's going to be one of the weak areas going forward, and one of one that really will bear watching. Can you speak to um, banks pulling back credit, particularly for commercial real estate? Absolutely. Uh, we've talked to several bankers uh, to try to get sort of real-time information on what's going on, and obviously. Uh, there's not a lot of demand for for loans uh, from the commercial sector, but even the you know the requests that are coming in, uh, underwriting is much stricter, uh, terms and standards are much stricter, and so even with the low rates, uh, we're not really seeing from bankers. We're not hearing about any loan money going out the door that wasn't PPP money, and so the PPP money was very helpful. That program has ended. We were hoping, or I mean, one might hope that it would be extended or renewed. Uh, because, uh, you know, that really was the only game in town for a few months there, and that's over now. And so banks are certainly not going to be forthcoming uh, with uh, loans for vulnerable businesses in the leisure and hospitality sector uh, or other impacted sectors, and that includes energy as well and some of the transportation sector like the airlines. Yeah, banks were given, banks were given, uh, real estate owners, a 90-day pass, adding interest to the back of their loan so that they could give their tenants some relief. Um, all that's 
has expired or is about to, do you see them doing that again or allowing the banks to do that again to push the, down the road another 90 days? Or do you, at what point are they going to stop being flexible like that? Because it, it seems to have softened the blow considerably. I think so. And we talked to bankers, like I said, we've been talking to bankers to try to get the real-time information on how this is going down. And so one of the things that we asked is, what's happening to the request for more payment deferrals and what's happening to their request for lo other loan modifications from, from the commercial uh, sector? And so they said that there's not a lot of requests coming in anymore and that there's a big decline in the number of requests for, for payment deferrals and so forth. Um, and so that suggests that things might be getting better. It, but I think there's still real pockets of distress there because they also tell us that there's businesses that they expected by now would have turned around and they have not turned around. So this is mostly hotels, things like wedding venues, mm -hmm. other uh, you know, gathering venues, conventions or whatever. But uh, these are the types of businesses that, um, that are the most vulnerable and have not turned around yet. Um, so I think there's just very deep pockets of distress, although it's less broad now it's 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 still there and that's a that, that's a huge concern and we're also seeing you know we've heard not from the federal reserve but from other uh agencies that supervise and uh, banks and do bank examinations and so forth that they are now um you know they're less tolerant uh and they said by the end of the year um they may be they may be changing the guidance on these loans uh the guidance that they originally issued in april um, Bill, yep. quick comment. And, and obviously, Joe, Joe's on the call. I see he knows a lot more about this than I do. But the key that we're hearing from all the banking community is end of the year. And the interagency guidance has been incredibly accommodative through the end of the year. Um, so if you, particularly the money center banks who really move the needle, they have been given a lot of latitude to be flexible with their borrowers and the way they allocate their loans and classify their loans, which affects their capital base. That's all pretty well done through the end of the year. It's really a Q1 2021 question and no one knows yet whether we even need it or not and I agree with Pia with the exception of hospitality you know we have a huge we have a 120 billion dollar servicing book that we control so we get the, a lot of visibility into loans we've seen a con, very low requests for payment deferrals in the last two months with the exception of hospitality so it's really all in retail in to some respects as well for sure but retail and actually surprised us in terms of its resiliency in certain cases so it's, it's the end of the year question then back to the previous question about the banks, and I, I think you're spot on, especially as it relates to money center banks, the, the larger banks, JP Morgan being included, Bank of America, um, others, Wells in particular, the regional, super regionals, and local banks have been actually quite active uh, deploying credit into the commercial real estate space. We've been doing a lot of business within the banking community in the last three to four months. I would tell you it's actually accelerating in terms of the liquidity and availability but again, it's only for things that make sense, that are defensive. So hospitality would be very difficult to get done, but in industrial logistics, multifamily, healthcare, MOB, product types that have been more defensive, a lot of liquidity still in the system. I had a quick question. Go ahead, Alan. Oh, sorry. Um, one is sort of a technical question. How does the Fed define underemployment? You hear different definitions. How does the Fed define that? And the second question is, um, assuming there's a sort of a second dip, uh, there's no, uh, no more government uh, PPP money or anything similar to that, are there any other levers the Fed can pull if needed? 
Pia, you're you're muted. There oh, thanks for that. Yeah. Okay, uh, that helps. Uh, okay, so under we don't define underemployment. The BLS does, and so it's usually people who either um, are working part time because they can't find full time, or because or they've dropped out of the labor force because they've been discouraged. They haven't been able to find a job. So that's sort of the U six definition. Um, from you know different from the headline unemployment rate, which is just people who are looking and who can't find a job. Um, so it's just a more expansive. You know, if you're trying to measure slack in the labor market, it's it's good to look at just not just those that are actively looking, but those have stopped looking as well, and those who who would like to work more hours um, and can't can't get those hours scheduled. Um, on a second dip, if there's a second dip, so. I mean, we didn't really talk about COVID. I mean, you guys are probably following the COVID cases and so forth. I mean, we're way down in Texas. So we're looking pretty, uh, I mean, we're in a much better place than we were just a month ago uh, with something like, I don't know what it was yesterday, but maybe 4,200 or 4,500 cases, new cases in Texas. So that's, so that's really good news, way down from when we were running the eight to 9,000 a day. Um, so, um, so in terms of a second dip, that's really going to depend on what, how this, you know, infection uh, spreads and how the pandemic progresses. Our biggest concern is the school starting up again. So colleges and universities, is that going to lead to a big spike, uh, you know, and a resurgence of the virus? And certainly uh, what happens, you know, in that case? I think the Fed, um, the Fed has pretty much pulled out all the stops. Um, if I sort of echo my boss, Rob Kaplan, I think he would say we are providing a lot of accommodation. Um, and so we're doing pretty much everything that we can do at this point. Uh, so, uh, so really it would become a fiscal response from, you know, the federal government with more CARES Act-like stimulus, which would be required, like an extension of the PPP program or more, uh, you know, unemployment benefits, that type of thing. Uh, that's really where the stimulus would have to come from, I think, because I think the Fed has done about all it, that it can do. Great, thank you. Hey, Pia, quick question. I was, this is Jason. Um, as I'm, I asked by my kids at the dinner table, and they're, and I'm trying to articulate what four trillion dollars means and the long-term impact as they think about themselves. You have a nice way to sum it up as we think about it long term as I'm trying to explain it to high schoolers that are trying to get their arms around fiscal stimulus and looking at it as something that's bite-sized for them to think about. Oh, Jason, did you ask about the debt? I'm sorry, I didn't catch what you said. Yes, yeah, so on the on the debt that's that's skyrocketing and just when we print four trillion dollars and it miraculously saves everybody, um, what oh, is yeah. the how do you explain that to a high school or a college kid that's going, okay, so what does that mean for me okay. in the future and the impact? Yeah. I'm just trying to help my kids and frame it out. Okay, so it means they should be putting their uh, money into those uh, IRA accounts. <laughs> the ones that are going to be, uh, you know, with the limit on them, the ones that you can take out your uh, capital gains with no taxes. But because uh, taxes are going to go up, that's what it means. I mean, for the next generation, of course, taxes for us have gone down, and they—that's part of the reason we're in this pickle. So the fiscal problem, the fiscal imbalance, and the huge deficits in debt 
uh, an increase in debt, really from just a few years ago, about 75% of GDP now to about 100% of GDP. So that's not just the pandemic, I want to say. It's also this the Trump tax cut, which we call it, um, which passed two years ago that actually was unfunded. And I think they started just with wanting to do corporate tax cuts, which I think was very necessary and important reform because we had very high corporate tax rates in, in the United States. Uh, but with that came also cuts in, in, in income tax rates. And that really made the whole package super expensive. And government never found a way to offset the decline in revenue with decline in spending. And so really we've been blowing the deficits up in an expansion before the pandemic ever came along. And of course, once the pandemic came along and they did this good, you know, this huge fiscal stimulus, which was necessary, it still really has deepened the hole. Um, so if there's one thing for sure that has to happen uh, is that taxes need to go up. Um, taxes can, I mean, the one thing that allows us to do this, as you guys probably know, uh, is, is, is foreigners' willingness to buy U.S. debt. And so we can continue to borrow and borrow and borrow to spend, you know, to, to plug this hole as long as foreigners buy our debt. Um, and that really depends on the dollar staying strong. Uh, and so if the dollar weakens, if we have other competing global currencies, there's going to be less willingness to hold our debt. And that means we're not going to be able to borrow at these rates anymore. And that means that that really, then the party's over. Then we're going to have to really face, uh, you know, face up to, um, to reality and start maybe aligning income with spending. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> do, do you see inflation as a risk or deflation? as a risk? Uh, so uh, I think, well, it's, it's hard to say uh, right now where we are uh, because um, central bankers are always going to worry a lot more about deflation than they are inflation. So the, the central bankers' worst nightmare is falling prices. And so, you know, if that's even a remote risk, uh, you know, the Fed gets very nervous, as you saw during the Great Recession when we did have uh, uh, deflation, uh, and so so that that that's always a concern. Um, now, with all this printing of money, uh, are we going to see inflation? It's it's unlikely. It's unlikely, at least in the in the in the short to medium term. Uh, we didn't see it in the Great Recession. We pulled out all the stops. We printed a lot of money. We did three rounds of quantitative easing, um, and now we're doing you know quantitative easing essentially again. Um, and it worked then in terms of, you know, uh, we didn't see big spikes in inflation, although many experts and many economists thought that we would. And so we're unlikely to see it, see it now either. Um, so I don't think that's the expectation now. Anybody have any other questions? Mia, I'll, I'll just give you a comment. I'm pricing out a lot of construction projects right now, and everyone said, you know, pricing was going to drop, you know, 10, 15, 20%. We got numbers back yesterday on a project, a hotel deal, actually, and prices hadn't dropped at all. I mean, nothing. And so yeah, we're just, it's right. amazing you see this economy in a free fall, apparently, but construction costs have stayed up there. And when I talk to my architects, contractors that, you know, my architects, their business is all dried up. They're not getting any new work. And the contractors, I don't know if they're at the very end of a long party and, and they think it's going to continue or what. But can you comment to that? 
Uh, well, lumber prices have doubled, right, in the pandemic. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, so I hear you. We see that too. We see construction costs are way up. Uh, and so what's happened is we have some sector, and also pr car prices. I mean, car prices are way up. New vehicles, used vehicles. Uh, and so what a lot of that where we're seeing price pressure is actually the supply chain. So we had lumber mills that, uh, you know, that closed due to outbreaks of COVID. Uh, we had manufacturing, car manufacturing plants closed because of, because of COVID. And when they reopened, we've talked to Toyota and others, when they've reopened, they said they're only at about 80% of their normal capacity because they have to do social distancing and they have to keep people separate and they have to do all these, you know, check everyone's health every, every day and, and, and do all, take all these safety and health measures. So they're not able to turn out cars at the pace at which they were pre-COVID. Pre and so, of course, this is less efficiency, less productivity. It means prices are going to go up, and they have. Uh, and car dealers don't have inventory. And so prices are margins on new cars are up something like two, $3,000 per car at the dealer. So huge increases in certain pockets. But then we have other areas where prices are falling. I mean, we talked about apartment rents briefly. I mean, if you look at the rent concessions, that's somewhere, you know, where prices are going down. Uh, so, so there's a real mixed bag out there. Anybody else? Via, thank you so much. That was very informative. I appreciate it. Uh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. You bet. Hey, Dan. Okay, yeah. so now we got Dan Noble from HKS. Uh, Dan, like, I, I'm a developer. I own I own buildings and. Um, when this started, I called, uh, we had several uh, build-a-suits going. I called tenants, I said, are, what are we gonna change? They said, let's wait, we'll see. And then 90 days later, I called them again and I said, okay, what are we doing? And almost all of them have kind of just been on wait, on hold. I haven't had anybody take action to change what the plan was pre-COVID. I'd love to, uh, hear what you're seeing and what you think the future is, et cetera, what, where we got to pay attention. Okay. Well, it's good to see a lot of uh, familiar faces here. Um, when I think about times like these, I think back to advice I received from one of my early mentors who said, things are never as bad as they seem, but they're never really as good as they seem either. Um, for us, the big question is, what are the changes we should be making now in this new COVID world today, and, but more importantly, um, in the future? So when you think about now, it's all about understanding the needs of the people and economically retrofitting our existing spaces to really be as safe and functional as possible. Um, and we can do it. If you had told me in January of this year that 100% that of our 1,500 employee staff would be working remotely, uh, would not be coming to one of our offices for at least six months, I don't think I would have been able to fathom it. But we did it, and we did it quite well. Uh, and we did it in less than a week. Uh, in the past six months, we've learned more about our employees and the essence of our work than really we ever had before. So we have a place performance team in our corporate interiors group, and we have a research group, and we're learning as much as we can from our staff. We've started out with daily, uh, then weekly, and now monthly firm-wide surveys, continually mining feedback from our uh, 24 offices worldwide. And what we found was completely aligned with what other research has been saying. We can work effectively remotely. The flexibility provides a whole new dimension to a balanced life. 
but there are many things we do where face-to-face -face engagement is much more effective. Human beings are social animals. So uh, we learned about how we collaborate and how we informally communicate. And that informal communication is oftentimes where really the, the good stuff happens, the creativity happens and the deals get done. Um, we learned what type of work is best done physically together and which type of work is actually more productive in other environments, such as the home office. I'm sure all of you have worked, you have a home office or have worked for home for several years. I know I have, and uh, sometimes I get more the, the, the quiet work I need to do where I really need to concentrate. I, I'm, I'm better when I'm kind of isolated. Um, so I think this pandemic has shown us that our workplaces are strategic tools for doing business, not just place, not just places, not just places where business is conducted. And the rush to reoccupy our spaces, I think we lost sight of one of the fundamental flaws exposed by the pandemic, that work was never a place. It was always a thing we did. It's, it's not a place, it's a thing. So our big question is, what do you need now to, to maintain productivity? What changes should you make in the near term to be more resilient when the next crisis impacts our enterprise? And most importantly, for those of you looking for the best long-term value, how can a future-focused approach position you to transform for long-term prosperity? So when I think about the future, uh, we're using our experiences and our research to reimagine how office design can support and even maximize this specific type of work that we're doing. So in talking about the future, I wanna start off by saying um, I'm bullish about the future of commercial real estate, especially in Dallas and North Texas. In fact, I'm extremely bullish. We're at seven and a half million people now in DFW region, where I think we're, we're four right now. New York City is about 20 and a half million. LA, I'm out in LA now, uh, is 13 and a half million. Chicago is about nine and a half million. So um, by 2050, we're headed to 12 million. So by 2050, we'll pass Chicago and be the third largest metropolitan area in the US. We're in the center of the country. We have a logistics advantage, a business-friendly climate, relatively low cost of living, above average infrastructure. We continue to have natural organic growth plus migration into, into the state. And speaking of that, Texas will be about, is projected to be about 55 million people by 2050. So I think the commercial market in this part of the world will continue to be strong. One of the things I think we really need to think about is what do we build? How do we build? What role does public policy play in that development? Um, how, do, how are we more connected and resilient? Um, so I want to talk to you. I, I wrote about this in the, um, the DCEO blog uh, that, that I do about four times a year. And uh, in it, uh, I talked about uh, a, a research project we completed. Uh, a, a study we're calling Community Block, uh, and it puts forward a framework for designing a more resilient community that have the built-in agility to respond to a public health crisis or just be a more livable, connected neighborhood today. So the framework calls for, I'm going to tell you why I think this is important for you developers or people that own land or working with the city. But the framework calls for healthier buildings that provide ample fresh air, better ventilation, access to daylight, a connected network of urban parks and green space, access to fresh produce and groceries, 
proximity to healthcare, a variety of housing types that serve all members of a multi-generational, multi-ethnic community, the inclusion of quality, quality education facilities and daycare, and access to all the supporting amenities of life, all within a half mile walk. It's a little bit of a back of the future move before the automobile allowed us to disperse many of these connected activities. The community block also allows for a purposeful flexibility at a time when jobs and true human productivity are also in extraordinary demand. So when you think about this idea, during a pandemic or health crisis, the community can monitor, access, can monitor all our access points, uh, can screen for infection, can limit vehicular traffic, can be self-reliant by accessing those neighborhood businesses and services I mentioned earlier, uh, provide a robust digital infrastructure that will ensure business and communication continuity, and most importantly, protect physical and mental well-being of residents. So that's in a pandemic or a health crisis. In normal times, the borders of the community blocks are meant to be porous, loose, welcoming, and expansive. So all of this requires space, more space, different space than what we have now. Imagine if you could repurpose, redesign, and develop your real estate to meet these needs. I think this is one of those bellwether moments for developers and civic leaders to reshape our built environment and really create our own uh, opportunity. Um, I've often told people in our office, you know, do you want to be a, a, an author of, of our reality or a victim of our reality? Now, I don't think demand, the demand will go away, but our solutions need to be more innovative, resilient, personalized, yet flexible, and health-focused. So, um, I, I, like I say, I, I, uh, I'm bullish. Our business, uh, you know, the first half of the year was our best year ever, and a lot of that was um, based on cash flow from, you know, uh, work done, work that was already under contract. But um, our Shanghai office is busier than it's ever been. We're hiring in Shanghai. Um, our health group is, is very busy. Uh, our research and um, uh, advisory group is, is extremely busy. So there's, there, there's, you know, I think for you developers and people that own land and um, have an interest in, you know, making the, our communities better, there's tremendous opportunity. Uh, a couple of things we say we see is that flex work is here to stay. Um, you know, how does your office uh, design, respond, and support this? The grand work from home ex experiment has proven for many that this is not only a viable option, but one that should be considered as a key part of any talent retention and business resiliency strategy. Uh, clients, we I feel you guys should take advantage of this time to understand what the work from home experiences positively offering your talent and should, you know, how you should adapt to this moving forward. So, so it's not a replacement. It's a, it's a combination of the two. It's what you're saying. Yeah, I think, I think there's, so, you know what, when I talked about the growth earlier, yeah. uh, there's um, you may see, and, and again, I, I think the jury's out on a lot of this. I, I wouldn't be quick to, to form a, a, a you know, an opinion, a solid opinion, I would say that it's, it's likely that your clients, uh, your tenants will require less space. But as we see growth in Dallas-Fort Worth, I think you're going to have more tenants and the, the hierarchy of spaces that you need. 
you know, the uh, larger spaces, um, the community spaces, the, the shared spaces, the amenity spaces, those are all going to have to be designed, I think, for uh, flex, for flexibility, for adaptability. If we go into these health crisis modes, uh, how do you separate people? How do you accommodate circulation flow? We're open. Our offices are open, every one of them, and they have been throughout this. Uh, we, um, we instituted uh, circulation patterns in all our offices. Uh, we have sign-ins to, to come into the office. We have a matrix where you, as a floor plan of our offices, uh, we, we stagger uh, people, just like when you go to a restaurant, you see the staggered spaces. We do that in all our offices. You check in, sort of like you get a tea time for work. Um, so you work from home, you work in the office. Um, it's not that our, our footprint needs have reduced, uh, but our um, the behavior of how our people utilize them has changed. So, so do you think the day of six and seven per thousand office buildings is over? Yeah, I don't think I don't think we we will be uh, determining office needs by math. Uh, I, I talked about this in one of um, I think it was with um, Bizno uh, uh, meeting we had that. We, we do functional and space program. A lot of people think in terms of space program math, you know, how many per thousand. We, we, I think that we'll be looking at a functional program. You know, how will we function? How will, how will our employees behave in the office space? When will they come in? How will they come in? So, you know, that, that idea of a one size fits all metric, I don't think is applicable going forward. But I think it offers those enlightened developers, the, the you know, opportunity, what do you do with that space? And then how do you um, market that and bring in people who are interested in that kind of forward thinking strategy? Anybody in the group have questions? Yes, the only problem is finding enlightened developers. <laughs> Jack. If you know any, should tell us. Yeah. I, I know a lot on this on this call right <laughs> now. Well, no questions. I can't believe you guys don't have any questions. I mean, like for me, um, you know, the biggest fear I, I I don't I don't like working at home. I think I can be efficient, but I miss collaboration. I think collaboration is it's a big part of my business. I mean. If I'm on a Zoom call and I got to get a hold of somebody, it takes me nine phone calls to get a hold of them. But when they're down the hall, I can walk down and talk to them. So I, I think being in the office is critically important. And and um, I mean, I get what you're saying. I do think we have to think about how we use our space differently. <clears throat> and we built all these buildings with all these amenities. And I mean, are you are you seeing that? Um, how you approach amenities and like, you know, all these decks and all these open areas where everybody would gather, you see all that changing to some degree, I hear. Yeah, you know, I, I wouldn't say it's gonna change. I, I, I it's particularly the outdoor spaces. Um, I'm here in LA and just walking the streets. Uh, the, the, the restaurants that have outdoor spaces are busy. They're, they're spaced apart, they're, you know, the fresh air. Here you can serve people you know, uh, outdoors. Now, I think the, the spaces that do have that integration between interior and exterior are, are gonna be more successful. 
again, I think you, the, you know, when we talk about being efficient, part of efficiency, I think, is how you use the space and not just the size of the space. So if you have a, if you have a space that um, one might call larger than you need, but if in times like this, it's utilized, it can be used because you can spread people out, you can utilize the space, then it's actually more, more functional, it's more effective. If it was a tight space where nobody could utilize, you wouldn't even be able to use it now. So there's a built-in flexibility in that sort of soft space. So do you see uh, like a two-story walk-up building where people can avoid elevators, uh, where they can walk up a stairwell? Uh, some, I know it's something that's kind of in vogue now. Like I've got some mid-80s buildings that are two-story walk-ups and we're really busy in those buildings. Yeah. Because it tends to be smaller tenants. But do you yeah. see that something... I mean, do you ever see us going back to normal? You don't. Yes. So that that what you just described, I wouldn't say this is what I was talking about earlier about having a functional program, not just a space program. What you just just described was a two-story walk-up where you can walk laterally. But really, what you're talking about is trying to eliminate the function of getting in a tight space with other people in an right. elevator. So, right. so, like, if you, we our office in, in Dallas. Yeah, we have seven floors in the uh, one Dallas center and we have a connection to the parking garage and a sky bridge on two. You can get from that sky bridge across the street to our second floor where we then have an interconnecting open stairwell through seven floors up and one floor down. So you don't, I mean, it's a seven floor walk, but you can walk up and down without getting it on an elevator through the entire building. So if, you know, if you start to think about, what's the problem you know how can you solve for the problem it may be that you know in some of your buildings you cut a hole through the floor to allow for that internal circulation right. Right. Uh, and avoid people having to get into a tight confined space folks questions bill i don't I, I think it's not a lack of questions as much as this work from home flex office space is a day-long conversation it's not a 15-minute yeah. conversation yeah. You can imagine we've done an amazing amount of work on this, just given the data set we have now globally at JLL. But I mean, this thing could go on for hours. This is the debate that is remains it will remain a debate for a while. And there's so many data points coming at us. There's just no no answers. It's kind of an opinion situation now. But you're seeing a lot of big companies even recently sort of take the plunge and, and make dedicated decisions to commit to office space. So I you asked the question, are we gonna get back to normal? My opinion. Normal is not going to look like normal was before COVID. Nothing right. will. That's what I think. Too. It's going to be a new version of normal. And I don't know what that looks like. I do believe that most companies in America are going to find a way to have office be an integrated part of their business, an office environment. I just think it's going to look different. And I think in North Texas, where we've got that built-in advantage, we're going to continue to have growth. You know, the stats I was talking about earlier. So you've got the, if you think of that as the fuel, you've got the fuel. The machine is your are your your um, assets. So you know you've got you've got your assets. Now you've got fuel, and you're going to continue to have fuel in this part of the country. That's an advantage that we have here that is unique. I think. I mean, every place has its own advantages, but we've got fuel, and we'll continue to have fuel. But uh, so Dan, Dan, for me as a developer, so you know, and I'm trying to, I want to go build what people are going to want when this thing turns back on, right? So you know, 
Are you talking bigger plates, less stories, more spread out type office space where you can walk vertically? I mean, you know, you can build plates that are huge, but people can walk vertically without getting in confined spaces and spread buildings out more than going vertically. Um, you know, it's just trying to kind of figure out all of us on this call, what, what kind of product our clients kind of want going forward. I mean, cause you know, we've been going down this road that we've all been kind of doing the same thing. So that's why I was saying it, it's not just um, large floor plates. I mean, in the, another advantage we have here is space and land. So you can continue to develop suburban right. type office spaces where that's happening. But in a downtown area where you already got that, that density and you don't have that luxury, you can still accommodate that kind of um, solution or, or a solution that meets the functional need. It, you won't be spread out vertically or horizontally, but you can have, as I said earlier, punctuations through the building that allow for that open um, regulation. And the other thing is, if you, um, this is what I was talking earlier about, more connected neighborhoods. If you think about uh, a uh, multi-use neighborhood, and you, if you had property in a downtown Dallas or in a tighter area, and if you worked with public policy, public officials, uh, other developers. When we did the Amazon uh, bid, you know, it was great to see all the, the people come together and collaborate to create a solution where the whole was greater than the sum of its parts, where there was interconnection between spaces, where there was sort of a work-life uh, connection, open space connection. And in that is built-in flexibility so that we can utilize those spaces in the unforeseen circumstances. All right, well, we've run past our time. Does anybody have any other questions? Thank you so much, Dan. I mean, that was, I, I, could, I could pepper you with questions for the, for the rest of the day as, as Trace does, because I'm trying to figure out what the hell to do going forward. But thank you for your time. Thank you everybody for, for uh, being involved in the call. It's important. I mean. It's great to see this kind of people being involved in the call. We're going to try to keep it relevant, and uh, we'll see you in two weeks. That's it for today's show. I'd like to thank Craig Davis of Visit Dallas, Pia Arenius of the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas, and Dan Noble of HKS for joining our latest executive call. Please subscribe to TrackCast and get all the latest episodes right to your phone, and check us out on social media as well. Once again, I'm Bill San Antonio. Thanks for listening.